On the third day, there were a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. And Jesus said to her, Woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you. Now there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding twenty or thirty gallons. Jesus said to the servants, Fill the jars with water, and they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, Now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. When the master of the feast tasted the water now become wine, and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, Everyone serves the good wine first, and when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. This, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee, and manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. After this, he knew down to Capernaum with his mother and his brothers and his disciples, and they stayed there for a few days. Like all weeks, please don't just believe me, don't just assume it's true because I say so. Let the Bible always be your authority. Last week we walked through four days of Jesus' life. In the first day we saw an inquiry without investments. The Pharisees had sent people to John the Baptist to find out what in the world he's doing there. But they weren't getting the information for themselves. They were doing it out of duty. In the second case, then on the next day, and we read the next day, there were those who had received the information, but there was really no initiative. As John the Baptist on our second day points out, behold the Lamb of God who uh, takes away the sins of the world. And yet in all of that, the sin of the world, and as that's the case, you could see his disciples kind of nodding and agreeing ideologically with this information. And yet, really, if we're going to be honest, nobody really does anything. On the third day of that, then we saw that there was uh, there was an identification, and it was with some investment. As John again points out, Jesus is the Lamb of God, that's your man, uh, and he gives a personal reference to that. He's, he's already done that, and now we get this point where there's a couple of disciples who follow him, and we read... Uh, that they start to follow him. Jesus turns around and asks, what are you really looking for? What are you looking for? And they say, where are you staying? It's the one day in these four days that we have our time stamp where it tells us it was late in the day. It was the 10th hour. So uh, 10th hour uh, <clears throat> puts us at 4 p.m. And that puts us in a place where it's clearly late. So they go and see where Jesus was staying and then they kind of head out. The following day, and that's our fourth day, we read, that they were found in following, uh, that Jesus would then find Philip, and Philip then would find Nathaniel. Jesus says to Philip, come follow me, as he wants to head up to Galilee, and uh, then Philip finds Nathaniel. Now, what we'll read for what it's worth uh, about Nathaniel, I believe it's John 21 too, is that actually Nathaniel was from 
Cana of Galilee, this very place that Jesus is having this experience here in our first 12 verses. So it's Nathaniel's stomping ground, if you will. And, and then they both follow him. Of course, Nathaniel has his experience. Can anything good come out of Nazareth? Because that's, of course, where Jesus is from. And then, uh, of course, Philip's response, come and see. And he comes and sees. And as it's the case, Jesus says, you are a true Israelite in whom there's no guile. There's, there's a guy with no falsehood. And Jesus, of course, pu- pushes the fig tree button and the guy falls on his knees and says, truly, you are the king of Israel. And then in verse 50 of the last chapter, Jesus had said, because I said, I, I, I saw you under the fig tree, you marveled and believe in that. Well, I should say you believe, uh, you will see greater things than these. For most assuredly, I, you will see hereafter the heavens open and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. Heaven and earth are going to connect and Jesus is going to be the bridge. And that really kind of hints us into now uh, chapter 2. And it's like, how? How in the world is heaven and earth going to connect? And we have this story. In this particular story, of course, the more we understand about a Middle Eastern wedding, the better it's going to help us understand this. But I'd like you to consider the fact that it starts with saying on the third day. Now, that's a strange statement to make. Because we only have two real options here. I mean, on one side of it, we have, well, we've walked through four days that here was the next day, the next day, the next day. But interestingly enough, the one day that was the third day in our lineup from last week was the one day we knew it was already late. And not only was it already late, again, it was 4 p.m. They went and stayed with them for the rest of the evening. Well, it couldn't have been that day because it was the one day too late to start a wedding, if you will. So on that side, it couldn't be. Well, then I have to go back and I go, well, wait a minute. Well, how could he say it's the third day? No, I mean, it's a strange statement to make. And of course, we can. the first place my mind would go was to sort of search throughout Scripture and how fun that third day thing is. Of course, going all the way back to it's the first place where God really invents life. Uh, in, the, in the Genesis account, the one thing that's going to bear fruit of its own, this first fruit's rising up from the ground. We get that in Genesis uh, 1, verses 11 and 12. So we get that, and that's a great precursor. We see Genesis chapter 22, where Abraham sees the uh, mountain, or if you will, the place of sacrifice from afar off, uh, where he's going to give that, or uh, ultimately seeking to offer his son. In Genesis chapter 40, it's where uh, the Pharaoh actually sets free the cupbearer and then actually breaks the bread, if you will, through the baker. Uh, Then, of course, it's where God descends on Mount Sinai in in, uh, Exodus 19.16. All of these things are happening on the third day. And, of course, as a Christian, that's pretty easy for us because we we know that the third day is going to be the big issue. That's where Jesus is going to be resurrected from the dead. So everything's, of course, we know hinting to that. Leviticus chapter 7 and 19 tell us it's the end of the peace offering is on that third day. Uh, it's when, according to Joshua chapter 1, verse 11, it's when they crossed the Jordan over into Israel. It's the report of Saul's death in 2 Samuel 1, 2. And it's when Hezekiah is healed in 2 Kings 20. I get all that. Of course, more so when I get to the book of Jonah and realize in chapter 1 of the four-chapter book, we don't even get past the first chapter before Jonah's three days in the heart of the fish, of course, well, in the belly of the fish, from which then he will be spewed out. Uh, and again, Jesus will refer to that. He'll say, you know, well, as Jonah was three days and nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be in the heart of the earth. He's been promising. And of course, at this point, he's beginning his ministry. We know that's yet to happen. And Hosea, for what it's worth, and I challenge you to keep that in mind, 6.2, it says, uh, in two days he will revive us, but on the third day he will raise us up that we might live in his sight. There is this promise that the third day is going to be very significant. So why the third day here, though? Is he just hinting at those things? Well, then I have to go back for a second. And if I were to go back two days to make this the third, I do find something interesting. That was the day they started following him. And I think that's kind of an interesting thought. 
that maybe in this, the reason John recorded it as the third day wasn't just a hint at that resurrection, though I think it's completely apropos for our text, but rather because before that there were days where people were really not gathering the information for themselves or aware of the information but not taking any initiative to follow. And for the first time they actually started pursuing and God's like, that's the first day of your new life. And I like that. Even in John's account, that all of those days that were wasted where you could have, or you should have, or I could have, or I should have, really, to be honest, those are days of a dead man. And he looks now and he says, those days begin now. Now that you're going to follow me, let's start now. And that really, that to me is cool. And then I get this idea that Jesus is like, follow me. Follow you where? The first place to work? Follow you to set up a clinic where you can just start healing everyone? No, follow me to a wedding of all places. Now, that's a fun thing to start with. Now, you may be aware of the fact it's quite a bit of an honor to be invited to a wedding. And a, a, a wedding is a really big deal. Now, the whole mindset, by the way, of the Western world is very different from the Middle East in regards to, if you will, according to romance. Uh, the basic idea is commitment happens first, romance follows. We put it the other way around. Of course, we've been raised on things like Disney and so forth. And if you just follow your heart, completely contrary to what... Proverbs says, well, what's going to happen is, is that you're going to put yourself in this place where maybe I'll find somebody that really tickles my fancy and I'm just going to, maybe I'll get a commitment out of it by the time I'm done. Versus what scripture had said, well, scripture really doesn't note that, but it, but it does point out here that as far as the wedding is concerned, you started with the idea that you actually committed and then the goods followed. I do like that commitment produced time, which ultimately resulted in intimacy. In other words, the payoff was at the end, not at the beginning. Now, the reason I say that is it's going to be very much like what the, if you see here, the master of the ceremonies is going to say as well. The good, by the way, always in God's economy happens later. God saves the best for last. The enemy gives you the goods up front so you spend the rest of your life paying for it. So here we are. So two days ago, we started inquiring, Jesus, where are you staying? And Jesus said, why don't you come and see for yourself? All right, good. Well, then we went from there to the next day. Jesus is finding another couple of people. There was Andrew and some other guy, more than likely John, the writer of this gospel. So there's Andrew, John. Andrew finds uh, his brother, Peter, and says, well, at this time, Simon. Jesus gives him the name change. So now there's three guys. That's that day. And then the next day, that's the day he finds Philip. That's four. Philip finds Nathaniel. That's five guys. So now Jesus is showing up with his disciples. Now it's a strange title. Now we're added to this concept. And at this point, maybe he's got five. And that would be if the two guys that followed him at first continue to do so. Simon Peter did as well. And then Philip and Nathaniel. Now, again, Nathaniel, this is his home ground. And we wind up at a wedding. So take a look around for a moment. Interesting. Uh, those, there are those days that it's bigger, days that it's smaller. And we look around and go, okay, that could be us. So here we are. We're following Jesus to a wedding. We don't know anything. Now, we don't know who got married here. That's clear. And it's the only account. It isn't like we can go to any of the other Gospels to get more information on this. This is unique to the Gospel of John. What we do know is where. It's in Cana. For what's worth, it means reedy place. And for what it's worth, even Cana as well, by itself, is only listed in the New Testament in this book. So it isn't like we'd know the place existed in the New Testament other than this particular uh, book. And we're going to see it a few times in here. So... The next thing we read, by the way, notice in Ken of Galilee was the mother of Jesus was there. Now, the mother of Jesus was there kind of makes it sound like Jesus met her there, doesn't it? Doesn't sound like she was there with Jesus gathering up these boys. Sounds like mom went to a wedding, and as mom was at the wedding, Jesus now shows up and sees his mother. Now, for what it's worth, I want you to realize that 
Mary seems to have some form of authority. Did you notice in this text? Now, I'm not talking about putting a gold plate on her head and having people bow down to her. That's another crazy thing altogether. The point here, though, is she's going to turn to the servants and say, whatever he says, do that. Now, some of you are from Mediterranean cultures, and you kind of know that mothers might tend to do that. They'll just, they just tend to think that if their kids are going to listen well, then every, or aren't going to listen, well, then maybe everyone else will. But that doesn't mean that their servants are going to listen to them. But here, clearly, Mary has enough authority to be able to actually tell these guys, the servants, hey, whatever he says, and she has enough authority to issue that authority to Jesus as far as they're concerned, because that's the way she says it. Which tells me, by the way, at this particular point, that Mary was a very important figure in this wedding. So then I start to wonder who in the world was getting married. It's possible, but it doesn't say, but it's possible it could have been one of Jesus' brothers. Have you thought that through? I mean, he had a few of them. We know that because when Jesus starts to speak in Nazareth, they get all offended and go, don't we know his brothers, James, Joseph, Simon, and, 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 um, and then anyways, in all of that, you get this idea that they're kind of like, well, we know these guys, and Jude, and, uh, and don't we know his sisters as well? I mean, clearly, Jesus had at least a six-pack of siblings, four brothers and sisters, plural. And now Jesus, I remind you, is starting his ministry roughly 30. He's the oldest. It all depends on when men get married, but that's the 20s more than likely for his brothers, oh, for what it's worth. But whoever it is, whatever the case is, Mary has at least a little bit of authority, and Jesus runs into mom. And Jesus, interestingly enough, she must have enough influence in this wedding that, she, that, that her son can't just show up, but also anyone who happens to be a student of him can also show up at the wedding. Now, maybe you're aware of this because we have a little bit of this trickling to our Western culture. But the father of the, of the groom was responsible to cover the entire cost of the wedding. That's food and drink and clothing for every person who came. Now, in other words, nobody had to rent a tux. Well, obviously you wouldn't in those days. Nobody had to worry. I mean, all of that was handled by one man, the father, who was ha- then handling his estate anyways because he was handing it to his son ultimately. Now, if you know that that was the case, by the way, well, then you kind of get Matthew twenty-two eleven a little bit where it tells us that the kingdom of, of God or kingdom of heaven is actually like a king who wanted to arrange a marriage for his son. And when he did, he obviously invited everyone. Nobody wanted to come, which would be a horrible dishonor, by the way, to, to do such a thing. And ultimately goes to the highways and byways and gathers everyone. And then it says, and he found somebody without wedding clothes on. And he's like, friend, how did you come in here like this? And of course, we tend to think in our culture, well, that'd be weird. I mean, the poor guy couldn't afford a suit. But understand, it's a king arranging a wedding for his, a marriage for his son. He's granting clothes to everyone. The only person who's going to not be wearing those clothes has refused those clothes, which means he protests to the wedding for what it's worth. So the only reason I say that is not only does Mary have the influence here to be able to let Jesus come in, but also maybe five other guys and again, the guy who's ever doing this either has a lot of money or he has some form of importance, finds some form of importance in Mary. Well, what's clear is he doesn't seem to have a lot of money. We see that because they went out of wine. Either he's a terrible planner or more than likely he just can't afford it. So now Jesus' guys have shown up and the poor guy can't even afford to keep them all, you know, as far as, as, far as that's concerned. Now, Jesus is there now. His disciples are there and mom's there. That much we know. Verse 3, and it says they ran out of wine. Now, don't miss this. doesn't say they didn't have any. It's just that they used to have, but they don't anymore. 
It's important to recognize mayim, yayim, yayim is wine, mayim is water. Uh, in Hebrew, uh, wine is anything that's cr- from the crushed grapes. It starts, by the way, from the moment that becomes juice, it's considered wine. It isn't like they had grape juice, de-alcoholized you know, wine, and then wine. All they had in those days was they had wine, is what it was called. So anytime it was grape juice, it was wine. Now, I don't know about where you come from, but where I come from, I tended to notice this. That if you were to walk into a store, and I remind you, I wasn't raised on the right side of the tracks. I was raised on the other side of the tracks. If you haven't been, praise God you don't have these experiences. But, for instance, one of the things is when you walk into a a particular place that sells alcohol, which here is everywhere, uh, you walk in and what you tend to see in the front aisles are the more expensive items, of course, like anything. And when you get to the deeper, the worst, the cheapest stuff... There is a difference, obviously. Now, in the beginning, something comes in a fancy bottle. It's decorated. Everything's. By the time you're done, you're buying it out of a box. You know, you kind of know you're in trouble. Interesting. When it comes to what we call wine, the very cheapest wine focuses on one thing: alcohol. As a matter of fact, where I come from, there used to be things called Annie Springs and Mad Dog 2020. Mad Dog 2020 was an enhanced wine. Now, what was enhanced about it? It had more alcohol. It was the cheapest stuff because when people bought the cheap stuff or the bad stuff, what was bad about it was it had it was it focused on the alcohol. The stuff that's the most expensive is supposed to focus on its sweetness. Interestingly enough, now for what it's worth, if we were to compare that in regards to broadening all of wine from grape juice to it just turning into vinegar. Uh, you know, then what we get is that the sweetest and the best stuff's the freshest. And the reason I say that is, is that obviously by the end of this, the, the master of the ceremony is going to turn and look and say, hey, you saved the good stuff for the end. It wasn't like he looked and went, man, this stuff, you, what, in a, you know, what in a bouquet, and when I tasted it, it swirled. I mean, the whole idea of it's quite simple. He's like, you know, the cheap stuff's the stuff that's way alcoholic. He goes, but this is, this is about it. This is really sweet. This is really sweet stuff you're doing here. Now, Jesus has shown up and we're at a position now. I remind you, Jesus is not a, we don't read that he has a, a seat of honor. What we read is he's a guest. Mom seems to have a seat of importance, but Jesus, I mean, it's a bit of a funny situation here being who he is and who she is. But in this situation, Jesus is just there as a guest. So here we all are. We went to a wedding today. And as we go to the wedding today, um, we'll just say it's a guy named Fluno who met a, you know, a, a Russian weightlifter and he really loves her. And, you know, and of course there it is. And we're all out there. We're just guests. Now, because we may love the groom, we would probably serve him. We might even do crazy stuff, stay up all night, decorate and do all kinds of crazy stuff, eat crazy chili. It all depends. But it all depends on the person. But, the, but we're guests. We're guests at this thing. And we don't have any record here that there's any relationship between Jesus or his disciples and whoever actually is getting married. As a matter of fact, we don't even have a conversation with the two of them. So Jesus is there and they run out of wine. Why in the world would Mary know this? You ever wondered that? Why in the world wouldn't Mary be the first, seem to be the one in the know? Jesus isn't here or his disciples. That tells me somehow she's kind of in the inner workings of this particular ceremony. Now, one other point for what it's worth, as we kind of dive into the kind of fun of all of this and then start bringing it to light, is that the Sanhedrin, this sort of religious ruling party, convened on the second and the fifth of every, of every week. 
And therefore, weddings took place in between them. Interesting, because it tells us that the third day. The reason is, is he wanted to make sure that they weren't actually, what if you wanted to invite somebody from the Sanhedrin to, ver- to verify your wedding? Well, they couldn't do that if they were busy in session. It's kind of like having the members of uh, the parliament, you know, it's like, well, what is your day off? We really want to make sure you make it to our wedding. Kind of that idea. And they wouldn't want to do it at the end because, well, you didn't want to compete with the Sabbath was kind of the idea, although there's arguments on that. In this, all of it, there was a wed- the, the virgins would come first and then after that would be the widows. So somewhere in all of that, they're completely in line with all of this. It's proper as far as the culture is concerned. They're in a situation, they've run out of wine, Mary's aware of it, and she turns to Jesus. Now, it is important also to note here that wine is symbolic of joy. And that comes from Psalm 104, verse 15, I believe, where it talks about it says, wine makes heart a glad the heart of man. Now, consider this. Some of you are from cultures, again, that are Mediterranean, and there is a great deal of superstition that comes with those particular cultures often. I mean, you break a glass, that's one thing. You break a mirror, that's another. You break something that holds oil, that's even worse. If you break something that's mirror rice that holds oil, you might as well just give it up because you just, the rest of your life's bad luck. Uh, and all that to say this, there are certain things, and I, and I have friends, of course, I have dear friends from those cultures that they're, they're very, and the one thing that's always like these, these omens, well, that's a bad omen, that's a good omen, and no place could be more superstitious than a wedding. They give you certain colors. Oh, that and when a girl gets pregnant, they're like, oh, you're carrying high, you're carrying low. Wait a minute, you wanted what kind of food? Oh, you chose blue clothing today. Well, it's clearly a boy. I mean, it's these kind of things that are happening. And, and you see, some of you are laughing because you know that that's cultural. And then the reason I say that is, is that when we're looking at this, if there's one thing that in essence is iconic of joy and it runs out at your wedding, what kind of omen do you think that is for a wedding? There's a uh-oh already, and you're thinking, well, there's one joyless marriage. That's the idea. So this isn't just like a social faux pas, uh-oh, we're going to have to drink water. It's actually, at this point, it's, uh, it says something, at least as far as the culture is concerned, about this couple. And, and, and so here we are at a couple that maybe, you know, like people could look and go, uh-oh, this is clearly a supernatural act where God says he's not blessing this marriage. And here it is, and Mary turns, and then it's important to note in that, Jesus, um, she tells him, and notice in this, that she doesn't tell him what to do. Did you notice this? Jesus is an adult now, and Mary doesn't have the authority to tell him what to do, but she can present the need to him. And that's different. And please hear that as a Christian. How is our prayer life? Are we telling God what to do, or are we presenting the need? Traditionally, probably we do both. We kind of say, here's the need, God, and I've already, you know, I know you're busy. Your mind's already wrapped up in a lot of other things. So why don't you just take my advice? This is what I recommend you do. Versus going, Lord, here is the need. I already know you're aware of it, but because I'm laying it before you, my eyes are open to seeing how you respond. What do you do? And there's an excitement there because you're not telling God what to do. And, and of course, that's our situation here. Mary just says, hey, they're out of wine. And his response is woman, which, by the way, is a term of respect. Some of us have different languages where there are certain words for somebody you're familiar with and certain words you have that are more of a term of respect. In fact, some of our languages, it's like it's almost two separate, you know, brackets of our relationship, the way we say things. And uh, in this situation, he's, t- he's speaking with a term of respect. He goes, now, what does your concern have to do with me? Now, don't miss that, because what Jesus is asking here is, mom, although he doesn't say it that way, does he? Woman, 
why are you, why do you want to get me involved in this problem? And I think that's a really great question to hear in our hearts when we're laying a problem before God. God, I'm lonely. Why do you want to get me involved? Am I a means to the end or am I the end? God, I'm afraid. God, I'm frustrated. I really feel like I need, I need, I need, I need. Well, exactly how am I, why are you asking me? Now, he says it this way, my time has not yet come. That's going to be really fundamental in the Gospel of John. Because if I can say that there is a specific hour Jesus already knows is awaiting. And notice the term yet in verse 4. What is your, what is your concern have to do? What does your concern have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. Now the great part is as a reader, if we're excited, if we're actually attentive in reading, and some of you I know are actually quite good readers. I mean, not just like you're good at reading it loud. I just love hearing you go read, by the way. Um, but in regards to, it's like you're on a train and some people are staring at a screen and you've got a book out. Or you better get the Bible, but you get that. And the reason I say that is, is that when we read and we're reading attentive and we hear this, my hour has not yet come, he is telling us that I have an hour and it is yet to come, so there's an hour coming. And that primes, if you will, my mind to say that the next time I start running into this hour thing, then I'm going to go, oh, wait a minute, Jesus had already said that that hour hasn't yet come. Is it now? Is it now? Is it now? And, and it's interesting because after this, by the way, uh, he'll say the same thing in essence uh, in chapter 7 when his brothers want him to go to the feast. And he says, look it, my time is not yet come. Your time is always ready, by the way. But and then in chapter 7, as he comes later on at the feast, they sought to take him, but it says, but they couldn't because his hour had not yet come. In chapter 8, the same thing. After they try to throw a woman caught in adultery and Jesus kind of lays that whole thing out and then he tells them that he is the great I am. In all of that, in the midst of all of that, they sought to lay hands on him again, but they couldn't kill him. They couldn't arrest him at that time because his hour had not yet come. But then by chapter 12, verse 23, he says, my hour has come that the Son of Man would be glorified. He says in a few verses later, 1227, my soul is troubled, but what should I say? Father, save me from this hour? It is for this purpose I've come, for this hour. And then in chapter 17, verse 1, Jesus, will, as he lifted up his eyes, he begins to pray, and he says, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may also glorify you. And might I just say this? God's counted your breaths already. He knows how many you're going to take. And you are not going to take one too few. It isn't like God's like, wait a minute, wait a minute. You still have five left. How did you get here? He knows. And until your time, you're not going to go. And when it is your time, there's no arguing. <laughs> you can tell God, not now. But if that's the end of your breaths, that's the end of them. And I understand why the psalmist would say, teach me to number my days that I would know how frail I am, that I would gain a heart of wisdom. Like if I would realize I really only have a certain amount of breaths and I don't know when that last one is, I really want to make the most of the ones I have. I don't want to just breathe to breathe and just exist. I was there before I came to him. Jesus has an hour and that hour will be the hour of the cross. Until then, he's in essence invincible. But he looks and he says, this is not the way to show me up. 
This is not the way he's through, and hear me on this, through like great miracles like this, is not the way that I need people to see me most importantly. In the end of it all, no matter what you do really, really well, will become in essence sort of a, an orbiting moon around the personality of you. And there are those, you know this, that know you kind of, but don't know you deeply. And you'll know that because they'll only know that about you. You can see it about the time birthday cards and those kind of things show up. Uh, and then one of the reasons I say that is because I know somebody that's like he's a golfer. He's an avid golfer. And it's like all of the cards he gets, and he's considerably older. He's, he's old enough to have friends of several generations. And so they all give him these cards. And he's a very decent person, very social. And, uh, and they're all golfing cards. It's all, you know, and so it's all like that's as deep as they know him. If they want to buy him a present, it's like a personalized golf ball. And we all have whatever those things are, those things that people kind of know that are peripheral, candy-coated shell items. And that's kind of as deep as some people, Most, be honest, most people are going to get. And then there are other people who are going to know beyond that, motivations and things that, that spark your eyes and things that drive you and make you excited and things that really grieve you. And those become, more than likely, those are your friends because you've let them in beyond that. And Jesus is like, I don't need people to basically cling to my candy-coated shell. The, the, clearly, signs are going to be done, and Jesus is going to do a fantastic amount of miracles. And yet, in doing all of those, it really isn't going to be the only thing that basically, it isn't like the sum of Jesus, is that he's a great teacher, a, a prophet, or a guy that just does a bunch of miracles. And a lot of people, that's where they want to cling. You realize that. You can talk to people who don't know Jesus, and that's where they go. They go to this place where it's kind of like, oh, yeah, yeah, I know about Jesus. You know, it's kind of like, well, I got him a golf ball for Christmas, you know. In the same idea here where they only know these kind of peripheral things, I'm like, but do you know his heart? Do you know what drives him? Do you know what blesses him? And do you know what grieves him? Because he looks at his mom, and he's like, Mom, this isn't the one thing I need to be known for. But mom, at that point, as you notice, isn't listening to that because she's already turning around. She says, Jesus, they have no wine, if you will. And then she says, all right, guys, whatever he says, he's the boss in this particular project, you do this. And it tells us then, as that's the case, verse 6, and again, notice the authority she has there. It says, there were set there six water pots, six for what it's worth, it tends to be the number of men, of stone. According to the manner of purification of the Jews, concerning 20 or 30 gallons apiece. A total, by the way, makes it roughly between 120 and 180 gallons. Maybe put it this way, or about 700 liters. That's a lot of, of liquid. Now, what it tells me here is that there's two things missing from this wedding. I don't know if you, if you caught it. Now, we've read the text already. Clearly, wine is one thing missing at this point. Though it had been there, but it isn't now. But there's another thing missing. Do you know what else is missing? Water. Water that was to be used to purify. Now, Mark, for what it's worth, tells us in Mark 7, 12, that there were, as Jesus' disciples were being accused of eating with unwashed hands, and they had all kinds of ceremonies about how to wash stuff. That everything had its own ceremony. That you washed everything. But I want you to notice in this, Jesus isn't going to say, refill the water pots. He's going to say, fill the water pots. Hear the difference. He doesn't say, refill them. He says, fill them. In other words, they have not been filled, and it is a wedding. Do you realize how important purity is for a wedding? Of all the things that should be there, 
This one should be a no-brainer and you don't even have to pay for it. Water was there at the well. No, there is a problem and that is that when you went there, the bucket at the well would be between nine or if you will, the jar at the well would be between nine and 10 liters. Now, if you have 700 liters, how many trips is that to the well? That's an awful lot of work. Now, there's specific kind of jars, and for what it's worth, there's different kind of materials you can use. Dust, dung, I don't know about you, but a dung bowl to wash my hands in doesn't make sense to me. Uh, skin, like is an animal skin, uh, you know, er, different kinds of earth, like clay, for instance, which is what we normally see. Shells, bones, rock, you can see all of those, but of all of those, the cheapest material in Israel to get is rock. The one thing that Israel comes up with more than anything is rock. Man, they have so much rock there. And it's on your property already. So when you, you know, to basically you just have to work it really long or you're going to get it. The reason I say that is to have these stone jars like this that hold that much. Could you imagine how heavy these babies must be? What's clear is they're going nowhere. You're not going to grab this big old honking jar that holds that much water. Have you ever carried a five-gallon jar like the ones that they use at water coolers? Well, the only reason I say that's five gallons, this thing here says that each one of these things holds between 20 and 30 gallons. So that's four to six of those, you know, those plastic things, you know. I'm thinking, that's a lot of weight, and that's without it being a stone jar. Now, this particular thing, for what it's worth, this this michla, which is the word that's used here, this particular size of a stone jar is specifically used for washing hands and feet because you're going to be dipping at a wedding, and every time you dip, you wash your hands. They didn't do the sort of double dip that friends of us do here, you know, where you put the salsa out and you just really hope no one has a disease as they keep dropping their tortillas in there. Now, the, the reason I say that is this, is that there are these six stone jars that should be full of water and they're not. And Jesus says, now that's going to be eternity. He's going to say, now fill them. Now, I'm going to put all this together here in a moment, but now how long do you think that took? Because it tells us that they filled them to the brim. That's 70 trips, 80 trips to the, to the well. I don't know how many servants we're dealing with, but unless there's 70 servants, chances are it's going to be more than one trip. And Jesus has got to wait while they do that. Now notice, by the way, the servants, they were just basically available, attentive, and obedient. Think of it. Jesus doesn't have to tell them twice. And what's clear in this is that he doesn't even have to tell them really hard specifics. They fill it to the brim. Unless he says otherwise, they're going to do it as much as they are able. Hear that. When the Lord tells you something, just do it as much as you're able. Now, after that, let the, I mean, the bottom line is the Lord give you that ability anyways. But we're like, you know, when we see throughout Scripture different times where a prophet, for instance, says, now I want you to take a, an arrow and I want you to, you know, shoot it out this window and there's a prophecy there and then shoot it out this window, there's a prophecy. Now take them and smack them on the ground. And the king's like, and he's like, you know, if you'd have really done that with some kind of passion behind it, you would have wiped out your enemy. But now you're going to only have this many victories, the amount of times you smacked it on the ground. And the only reason I say this, I think the Lord's looking for passion. When we're excited about doing something, when the Lord finally says, let's do that, it isn't like, well, how much do I have to do to, to get a passing out of it? Versus, I want to give you everything. I want to do it olympically. Well, they fill it to the brim. You know, at this point, I notice that the two things that have been missing is water for purity and then wine for levity, if you will. And the two things are missing. And Jesus is going to notice he's going to take the route of one to get to the other. I think that's really important. 
there is a bride and groom that people are going to look at. And unless there's going to be wine soon here, grape juice, if there's less there's going to be, what you're going to find is people are going to think this is a joyless marriage. And that's a terrible omen anyways. And so he looks and Jesus is going to step into this whole thing. And notice he doesn't go after the superstition or any of that because there's a bigger issue here. And in that, then finally, he takes it and it says then, uh, they went and they filled these things, however long it took. They're over to the brim now. So they're to the top where they get the cool little bubble at the top. And then Jesus gives this crazy command. And he tells the same servants, apparently, as he said to them, draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. Now, let me just say this, that the Lord often in an act that he does that's about to create a miracle, is he often starts with a very simple command. Something that you seem is almost mundane. And ironically, we'll tell God that it's too mundane to do. But then when he gives us the second part of the command, that's too crazy to do. It's like, I can't win either way. So in this case, hey, just go fill, that, fill those water pots. Would you do that? Now, I remind you, they seem to be privy of the situation here. And somewhere in it, Mary's like, okay, listen, just do what he says. And he says, all right, which doesn't seem like there's any hesitation. Well, then go fill them. So... The Lord says, go talk to that person. What am I talking about? I'll tell you later. Or go and do this. I just want you to go and head to this area and just be there. Go sit in that cafe. Weird as those kind of things sound. And I'm there. I'm I'm available. I'm I'm going to be available, attentive, and obedient. Let's do it. So here I am, Lord. I'm I'm just going because you said it. I'm going to be there. All right. And then he's going to like, now, all right, here's the deal. I want you to go pray for that person. And you're like, okay, that's just crazy. He's like, yeah, well, the first part was easy. But would you rather go and lay hand on a stranger and pray with them? Or would you rather do this? Take the, the jars that washed feet. And in that, and then as the, as the case, now I want you to do, then I want you to go and draw some of that really nice, wonderful, yummy foot water. Well, they're pouring it, so it isn't like it's going back in the jar. But then in that, and then just go, and then go take it and just bring it to the guy who's in charge of the whole wedding. So here you go. Which one of you volunteers for that job? Because you are the one person who's going to have the most amazing story to tell later that no one else can. Now, ultimately, everyone's going to know sooner or later. We don't know where it changes. But somewhere in all of this, this guy's going to take this. Oh, well, thank you very much. And he's going to take a sip of it and go, what? And what? Now, I don't know. It tells us. Well, notice what it says. They took it to the master feast and he did it. And can I say, here were the two basic commands in this portion. One is, do what he says, whatever he says, do it, and then take it to the master. Imagine if that was our whole life. Just do what he says, and then take it to the master. Whatever it is, take it to the master. Guess what Mary did? Mary had a need, and she took it to the master. And Jesus then took it and handled the situation. The servants saw the need, followed Jesus, and as they followed Jesus, they did what he said, and they took it to the master. Now, when the master of the feast had tasted the water that was made wine. Hints at the idea it was happening as he was sipping it, but it doesn't prove it full out. He didn't know where it came from, which tells me, by the way, that he seems to be aware that it had changed that from water to wine. Does that make sense? Because he didn't know where it had come from, but he doesn't know where the wine had come from, but the servants who drew the water knew. Now, this is the joy of serving Jesus. The stories you get glutted with because you just were available, attentive, and obedient. Whatever that is, does it have to make sense? You know what's amazing is the command usually makes sense. It just doesn't make sense as you try to insert it into your life. 
or you try to insert it into your skeptical friends, or you try to insert it into your comfort zone or whatever. It, that's where it doesn't make sense. But it makes sense as far as what the Lord says to do. And you're like, I, I, I fully get what you're saying. I just, it's, it's freaking me out to think how I'm going to apply that. But can I just say, do what he says, take it to the master. Now with that, he calls over the bridegroom because apparently he thinks bridegroom's in on this. So they've drank whatever it was that they had before. He seems to be aware that it's out. And he kind of looks and he's like, wait a minute, wait a minute. Or is he aware? But he says, though every man at the beginning sells the good wine, or sets out the good wine, I'm sorry. And when the guests have well drunk, well, then the, the inferior, you save the good wine until now. Like a wedding where the commitment comes and then the best comes last. The closer, the enjoyment of a, of a beautiful marriage. God always saves the best for last. So this is what we have. A wedding. That's joyless. Because two things were lacking. The purity of the water. And the and the levity of the, of the wine. And let me ask you, Christianity, Jesus, your walk, is that where you're at? Doing it out of duty? Doing it because you have to? Or because you get to? It's easy to do. But I guarantee you, if you're doing it because you have to, there's no joy in it. There's no wine at that wedding. And Jesus steps into this. The first way that he's going to reveal, he's like, okay, follow me. So they follow him. And where are they going to follow him to? A wedding that's lacking the two most fundamental things for a wedding. And that is, if you think about it, that's the purity that actually gives them a reason to be together and the levity of them actually being together, the joy of them actually enjoying their relationship. And you go, realize that's the problem. You really want to destroy a wedding? That's easy. You want to destroy a marriage? That's easy. Remove the purity. And you watch that happen. It's internet porn. It's chatting with somebody you know you're not. And whatever the case is, something that doesn't, is going someplace it doesn't belong. And then all of that, now it's impure. And it's amazing because it seems to me, don't miss this, that the reason that it was the case was because of neglect. There was no, I mean, if the water was available and it was readily available, why wasn't it there? And interesting, because there was no water, because of that neglect, there was no wine. Or at least that's the way Jesus is going to address it. So he's like, okay, let's start with the first thing. Let's deal with the purity issue. Let's get this thing right. Let's get the living water back into this situation. And let's get the purity back in this relationship because that's where we want to start this. And then as we start it that way, and that's like repentance. And as it becomes to that, then the next thing is, well, now let's get to the joy of this relationship. Because that's what's supposed to happen. How in the world can we bear fruit, uh, any good fruit, if our whole life really revolves around us being personally entangled in everything but the relationship that should be the most important? And how did this happen? Because Jesus just showed up at your wedding. The crazy part is, is that when John is challenged because Jesus is John the Baptist, because Jesus' ministry is now budding and flourishing, is where John the Baptist, on the other hand, is starting to actually decrease. The relevant information that he gives, the, the answer he gives is, can the friend of the bridegroom 
I'm the friend of the bridegroom, the shushbanim. And that's the, that's the groom. I'm just the friend. Of course I need to decrease. When they ask about fasting, can the friend of the bridegroom fast? Can the bridegroom, those that are with the bridegroom, I mean, do they fast when he's there or when he's gone? Jesus is constantly bringing us back to the most important nuptial in history, you and him. Mankind and a God who loves him all the way down to the end of the book. Read the end of the book. You get to to Revelation and as you get to the last two chapters, the whole thing is about a great wedding. And you're a part of it. And I realize Jesus steps off uh, off of obscurity, out of the, the mist, if you will, into a clear ministry. And he starts it by going, let's get this right from the beginning. Let's deal with the purity factor. And then as we deal with the purity factor, let's deal with the joy of our relationship. And imagine that today the Lord dragged you in here one way or another. And as he brought you in, this is what he wanted you to hear. Because let's face it, No positive fruit happens from a couple that's nowhere near each other. You're not going to find any children happening with the couples nowhere near each other. And it says, this was the beginning, verse 11, the beginning of signs. You know what that tells me? This is only the beginning. Jesus has so much more to do. We have so much more to discover. But this was the beginning of it right here. You know how it starts? It starts by getting those two things right. Oh God, get me back to that place where my heart and my feet and my hands and my eyes and my mind are, are pure. And you realize, wait a minute. There is the cleansing and then there is the coalescing, the coming together. And I realize that's the cross and the resurrection. Because at the cross, all of that filth is paid for to be washed in his own blood. He goes, that's what we're going to need to do to get this right. And then the resurrection gives me a joy in that salvation. And I realize, isn't that exactly what Jesus did when he celebrated that last Passover? It was the broken bread that he said was his body. And that's the cross. And then it was the cup of of communion uh, that he would tell us would ultimately be his resurrection. And I realize this whole thing comes to this. He goes, this is the beginning of it, but you want to see it hit ahead? Wait till you get to the cross. It's going to become real clear. And this he did. And, kinda, and therefore, he manifested who he really was. He manifested his glory. The end result, his disciples believed in him. Jesus wanted to go up to Galilee And he had gathered five guys with him, if you will, to follow him up, most of which lived up there. And as he goes, if if not all, and then he gathered them up, as he starts to take them up, he's like, now let's go to a wedding, you guys. Because I've got a house call to make. That's something really important. When I say tonight, wherever you rest your head on your pillow, to Lord, I want to say, hey, don't we want that joy in our relationship? Well, let's start working towards that. Let's get, let's take everything else back to the cross. Let's let it lay there. And as it's there and all that filth and the world and the stuff that we kind of get so adulterous in our hearts for the Lord, uh, you know, against the Lord. And yet in all of that, as that's laid down, and the only thing left then, Jesus is like, no, let's celebrate being together. Because the crazy part is I'm the one who got the good end of the deal. You know, the Lord got me. I got him. 
You know, I mean, I should be overjoyed and he should be the one going, oy vey, look what I got. You know, how in the world did that flip? How in the world can I look and go, oh, I've got, oh, the Lord. And, oh, but there's the world and the Lord's like, are you kidding me? You're the one who should be celebrating, you know. And I'm like, Lord, and you're the one who should be going, oh, what am I going to do? And as we go to prayer, let me just ask you, you know, where are you at? Are you happy to say, Lord, whatever it is, is yours. Man, just wash away anything that just gets between us. And then as a servant, are we available, attentive, obedient? Whether it be the simple, mundane, or whether it be something radical and magnificent. Because in the end of it all, those crazy obediences are the moments that these guys for the rest of their lives are going to be able to sit down and go, let me tell you about the craziest wedding I went to. I don't know who's going to believe them. Would you believe them? Okay, so I was there, and, and that was Mary. You guys know Mary, and there she was. We don't read Joseph anywhere in the story, but we read Mary, and no, she wasn't. She's like, I don't know. The, the gal just stepped up, and she says, hey, do, do what my son says. And you're like, okay, yes, ma'am. And the guy told me to do crazy stuff. He told me to fill the water pots. Okay, I don't know why they were not full in the first place. But then after that, then he told me to go and give some of that to the, to the MC. And the guy's like, whoa. Uh, and, like, and there was wine all of a sudden. And there was wine. And it wasn't just cheap wine it wasn't just like somewhere and all of that it turned red it was you know and it was like the guy's like well it must be wine it's red i mean the guy was like this is this is as good as it gets right here this is this is the good stuff and imagine us being like yeah 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 uh, that guy's a nutter when, you, know, you know how easy it would be but for the rest of his life but when you you know what it's like when you listen to somebody tell something crazy or wacky or off or wonky but watching their, you look at their eyes and do they sparkle when they tell it because if nothing else you're like well I don't really know whether it's true or not but what's clear is that person certainly thinks so but to be able to watch them and their eyes sparkle and go yeah let me tell you what Jesus did because you were available and attentive and obedient. And might I say, if that's where you're at, then might I suggest two simple things. Do what he says and take it to the master. Would you pray with me? God, I want to thank you so much for this text. And of all the places you could have taken them to start this off, a leper colony, or to some form of convening for the Sanhedrin and just start cleaning house. And yet in all of that, this is where you start it. It's to gather a group of guys who are just students, disciples now. They've, they've said they were going to follow you. And when they said they were going to follow you, they joined the school of Jesus. And when they did, had they any idea where the classroom would be and what the subject matter would be and how it would be taught like this? But to think that you didn't bring them first to something arduous, but rather something beautiful and celebratory, you took them to a feast. And here they are, Lord, at this feast. And there's neglect of the water pots. And I pray for every one of us, myself included, if there is neglect in our water pots, neglect, Lord, to seek to, to have our lives pure before you. Let that be changed right now here in this room. We would say, Lord, please fill my water pots with your living water. I'm empty and I need you more and more. 
And I do not want my life to be one that is dry and filthy. And as you fill, Lord God, change. Turn that water to wine, Lord. Restore the joy of our salvation with you. Develop that love relationship you so hunger for with us. Please, God. And give us the joy of being like these servants who were available, attentive and obedient, where they could listen and be willing to hear your voice. And to do the simple things, Lord, but also to, to do the, that are all strategic, be them however simple or be them however magnificent, Lord, but to be willing to risk it when we need to risk it, to know somehow, Lord, when we said we would do what you said, it wasn't just the stuff we agreed with. And we confess, Lord, that if you've saved the best for last for us as well, that there's so much more we have yet to discover. Get us excited. Give us that hope, Lord. Be it here on earth, but even more so, Lord, as we stand before you and spend eternity with our Lord and Savior and love and friend. And Lord, I just pray as we confess your cross and at that cross all the filth being washed away and the guilt being rectified. We thank you. And just as you promised on that third day, just like this wedding on that third day, you rose. And as you rose, you offer us new life. On that third day, a couple has new life with each other. A, a relationship has been brought together and deep and beautiful intimacy. And we thank you that on that third day you showed us that we no longer have to walk around with that death upon us, but a new relationship begins our third day where we begin to follow you and our whole life has changed. So please make that so we pray. Jesus, in your name, Amen. Lord, you've heard our prayers today. Be blessed, Lord, I pray. May we honor you in them. And may we walk, Lord, according to this that we've prayed. Jesus, in your name. Amen.
girl Jesus you 